Section 32 of Volume 1, A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Émilie Jomar. Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 16 The Crusades Their Origin and Their Success. Part 2. In 1095, after the preaching errantry of Peter the Hermit, Pope Urban II was at Clermont in Auvergne, residing at the Grand Council, at which thirteen archbishops and two hundred and five bishops or abbots were met together with so many princes and lay-lords, that about the middle of the month of November the towns and the villages of the neighborhood were full of people, and diverse were constrained to have their tents and pavilions set up amidst the fields and meadows, notwithstanding that the season and the country were cold to an extreme. The first nine sessions of the council were devoted to the affairs of the church in the west, but at the tenth Jerusalem and the Christians of the East became the subject of deliberation. The Pope went out of the church wherein the council was assembled, and mounted a platform erected upon a vast open space in the midst of the throng. Peter the Hermit, standing at his side, spoke first, and told the story of his sojourn at Jerusalem all he had seen of the miseries and humiliations of the Christians, and all he himself had suffered there. For he had been made to pay tribute for admission into the holy city, and for gazing upon the spectacle of the exactions, insults, and tortures he was recounting. After him, Pope Urban II spoke in the French tongue, no doubt, as Peter had spoken, for he was himself a Frenchman, as the majority of those present were, Grandet and Populus. He made a long speech, entertaining upon the most painful details connected with the sufferings of the Christians of Jerusalem, that royal city which the Redeemer of the human race had made illustrious by his coming, had honored by his residence, had hallowed by his passion, had purchased by his death, had distinguished by his burial. She now demands of you her deliverance, men of France, men from beyond the mountains, nations chosen and beloved of God, right valiant knights, recall the virtues of your ancestors, the virtue and greatness of King Charlemagne and your other kings. It is from you, above all, that Jerusalem awaits the help she invokes. For to you, above all nations, God has vouchsafed single glory in arms. Take ye, then, the road to Jerusalem for the remission of your sins, and depart assured of the imperishable glory which awaits you in the kingdom of heaven. From the midst of the throng arose one prolonged and general shout, God willeth it, God willeth it. The Pope paused for a moment, and then, making a sign with his hand as if to ask for silence, 
he continued, If the Lord God were not in your souls, ye would not have all uttered the same words. In the battle, then, be those your war-cry, those words that came from God. In the army of the Lord, let naught be heard but that one shout, God willeth it, God willeth it. We ordain not, and we advise not, that the journey be undertaken by the old or the weak, or such as be not suited for arms. And let not women set out without their husbands or their brothers. Let the rich help the poor, nor priests nor clerks may go without the leave of their bishops, and no layman shall commence the march save with the blessing of his pastor. Whosoever hath a wish to enter upon this pilgrimage, let him wear upon his brow or his breast the cross of the Lord, and let him who, in accomplishment of his desire, shall be willing to march away, place the cross behind him, between his shoulders. For thus he will fulfill the precept of the Lord, who said, He that doth not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The enthusiasm was general and contagious, as the first shout of the crowd had been, and a pious prelate, Adamar, bishop of Puy, was the first to receive the cross from the Pope's hands. It was of red cloth or silk, sewn upon the right shoulder of the coat or cloak, or fastened on the front of the helmet. The crowd dispersed to assume it and spread it. Religious enthusiasm was not the only, but the first and the determining motive of the crusade. It is to the honor of humanity, and especially to the honor of the French nation, that it is accessible to the sudden sway of a moral and disinterested sentiment, and resolves without prevision, as well as without premeditation, upon acts which decide for many a long year the course and the fate of a generation, and, it may be, of a whole people. We have seen in our own day, in the conduct of populace, national assemblies, and armies, under the impulse not any longer of religious feeling, but of political and social agitation, France thus giving herself up to the rush of sentiments, generous indeed and pure, but without the least forecast touching the consequences of the ideas which inspired them, or the acts which they entailed. It is with nations as with armies. The side of glory is that of danger, and great works are wrought at a heavy cost, not only of happiness, but also of virtue. It would be wrong, nevertheless, to lack respect for and to speak evil of enthusiasm. It not only bears witness to the grandeur of human nature, it justly holds its place and exercises its noble influence in the course of the great events which move across the scene of human errors and vices, according to the vast and inscrutable design of Trod. It is quite certain that the crusaders of the eleventh century, in their haste to deliver Jerusalem from the Mussulman, were far from foreseeing that a few centuries after their triumph, Jerusalem and the Christian East would fall again beneath the yoke of the Mussulman and their barbaric stagnation. And this future, 
had they caught but a glimpse of it, would doubtless have chilled their zeal. But it is not a whit the less certain that, in view of the end, their labor was not in vain. For, in the panorama of the world's history, the Crusades marked the date of the arrest of Islamism, and powerfully contributed to the decisive preponderance of Christian civilization. To religious enthusiasm there was joined another motive less disinterested, but natural and legitimate, which was the still very vivid recollection of the evils caused to the Christians of the West by the Mussulman invasions in Spain, France, and Italy, and the fear of seeing them begin again. Instinctively war was carried to the East to keep it from the West just as Charlemagne had invaded and conquered the country of the Saxons to put an end to their inroads upon the Franks. And this prudent plan availed not only to give the Christians of the West a hope of security, it afforded them the pleasure of vengeance. They were about to pay back alarm for alarm, and evil for evil, to the enemy from whom they had suffered in the same way. Hatred and pride, as well as piety, obtained satisfaction. There is, moreover, great motive power in a spirit of enterprise and a taste for adventure. Care for nothingness is one of mankind's chief diseases, and if it plays so conspicuous a part in comparatively enlightened and favored communities, amidst the labors and the enjoyments of an advanced civilization, its influence was certainly not less in times of intellectual sloth and harshly monotonous existence. To escape therefrom, to satisfy in some sort the energy and curiosity inherent in man, the people of the eleventh century had scarcely any resource but war, with its excitement and distant excursions into unknown regions. Thither rushed the masses of the people, whilst the minds which were eager above everything for intellectual movement and for knowledge thronged on the mountain of St. Genevieve to the lectures of Abelard. Need of variety and novelty, and an instinctive desire to extend their views and enliven their existence, probably made as many crusaders as the feeling against the Mussulman and the promptings of piety. The Council of Clermont, at its closing on the 28th of November, 1095, had fixed the month of August in the following year, and the Feast of the Assumption for the departure of the Crusaders for the Holy Land. But the people's impatience did not brook this waiting, short as it was in view of the greatness and difficulties of the enterprise. As early as the 8th of March, 1096, and in the course of the spring, three mobs rather than armies set out on the crusade, with a strength, it is said, of eighty or one hundred thousand persons in one case, and of fifteen or twenty thousand in the other two. Persons, not men, for there were amongst them many women and children, whole families, in fact, who had left their villages without organization and without provisions, calculating that they would be competent to find their own way, and that he who feeds the young ravens would not suffer to die of want pilgrims wearing his cross. Whenever on the road a town came in sight, the children asked if that were Jerusalem. The first of these mobs had for its head Peter the hermit himself, 
and a Burgundian knight called Walter Havnot. The second had a German priest named Gottschalk, and the third a Count Emico of Leningen, potent in the neighborhood of Mayence. It is wrong to call them heads, for they were really nothing of the kind. Their authority was rejected at one time as tyrannical, at another as useless. The grasshoppers, was the saying amongst them in the words of Solomon's Proverbs, have no king, and yet they go in companies. In crossing Germany, Hungary, Bulgaria, and the provinces of the Greek Empire, these companies, urged on by their brutal passions, or by their necessities and material wants, abandoned themselves to such irregularities that, as they went, princes and peoples, instead of welcoming them as Christians, came to treat them as enemies, of whom it was necessary to get rid at any price. Peter the Hermit and Gottschalk made honorable and sincere efforts to check the excesses of their following, which were a source of so much danger. But Count Emico, on the contrary, says William of Tyre, himself took part in the plunder and incited his comrades to crime. Thus, at one time taking the offensive, at another compelled to defend themselves against the attacks of the justly irritated inhabitants, these three immense companies of pilgrims, these disorderly volunteers, with great difficulty arrived, after enormous losses, at the gates of Constantinople. Either through fear or through pity, the Greek emperor Alexis, or Alexius, Comnenus, permitted them to pitch their camp there. But before long, plenty, idleness, and the sight of the riches of Constantinople brought once more into the camp license, indiscipline, and a thirst after brigandage. While awaiting the war against the Mussulman, the pilgrims pillaged the houses, the palaces, and even the churches in the outskirts of Byzantium. To deliver his capital from these destructive guests, Alexis furnished them with vessels and got them shipped off across the Bosporus. Whilst the crusade was commencing under these sad auspices, chieftains of more sense and better obeyed were preparing to give it another character and superior fortunes. Two great and real armies were forming in the north, the center, and the south of France, and a third in Italy, amongst the Norman knights who had founded there the kingdom of Naples and Sicily, just before their countrymen, William the Bastard, conquered England. The first of these armies had for its chief Godfrey de Bouillon, Duke of Lorraine, whom all his contemporaries have described as the model of a gallant and pious knight. He was the son of Eustace II, Count of Boulogne, and the luster of nobility, says Raoul of Caen, chronicler of his times, was enhanced in his case by the splendor of the most exalted virtues, as well in affairs of the world as of heaven. As to the latter, he distinguished himself by his generosity toward the poor, and his pity for those who had committed faults. Furthermore, his humility, his extreme gentleness, his moderation, his justice, and his chastity were great. He shone as a light amongst the monks, 
even more than as a duke amongst the knights. And nevertheless he could also do the things which are of this world, fight, marshal the ranks, and extend by arms the domains of the church. In his boyhood he learned to be first, or one of the first, to strike the foe. In youth he made it his habitual practice, and in advancing age he forgot it never. He was so perfectly the son of the warlike Count Eustace, and of his mother, Ida de Bouillon, a woman full of piety and versed in literature, that at sight of him even a rival would have been forced to say of him, For zeal in war behold his father, for serving God behold his mother. The second army, consisting chiefly of crusaders from southern France, marched under the orders of Raymond the Fourth, Count of Toulouse, the oldest chieftain of the crusade, who still, however, united the ardor of youth with the experience of ripe age and the stubbornness of the greybeard. At the side of the seed he had fought, and more than once beaten the Moors in Spain. He took with him to the east his third wife, Elvira, daughter of Alfonso the Sixth, King of Castile, as well as a very young child he had by her. And he had made a vow, which he fulfilled, that he would return no more to his country, and would fight the infidels to the end of his days, in expiation of his sins. He was discreet though haughty, and not only the richest but the most economical of the crusader chiefs. Accordingly, says Raoul of Caen, when all the rest had spent their money, the riches of Count Raymond made him still more distinguished. The people of Provence, who formed his following, did not lavish their resources, but studied economy even more than glory. And his army, adds Guibert of Nogent, showed no inferiority to any other, save so far as it is possible to reproach the inhabitants of Vence, touching their excessive locacity. Bohemond, prince of Tarento, commanded the third army, composed principally of Italians and warriors of various origins, come to Italy to share in the exploits and fortunes of his father, the celebrated Robert Guiscard, founder of the Norman kingdom of Naples, who was at one time the foe, and at another the defender of Pope Gregory the Seventh, and who died in the island of Cephalonia, just as he was preparing to attempt the conquest of Constantinople. Bohemond had neither less ambition nor less courage and ability than his father. His appearance, says Anna Comnena, impressed the eye as much as his reputation astounded the mind. His height surpassed that of all his comrades. His blue eyes gleamed readily with pride and anger. When he spoke you would have said he had made eloquence his study, and when he showed himself in armor, you might have believed he had never done aught but handle lance and sword. Brought up in the school of Norman heroes, he concealed calculations of policy, beneath the exterior of force, and although he was of a haughty disposition, he knew how to be blind to a wrong when there was nothing to be gained by avenging it. He had learned from his father to regard as foes all whose dominions and riches he coveted, and he was not restrained by fear of God, or by man's opinions, or by his own oaths. 
it was not the deliverance of the tomb of Christ which fired his zeal or decided him upon taking up the cross, but as he had vowed eternal enmity to the Greek emperors, he smiled at the idea of traversing their empire at the head of an army, and full of confidence in his fortunes, he hoped to make for himself a kingdom before arriving at Jerusalem. Bohemond had as friend and faithful comrade his cousin Tancred d'Hauteville, great-grandson through his mother Emma, of Robert Guiscard, and according to all his contemporaries, the type of a perfect Christian knight, neither more nor less. From his boyhood, says Raoul of Caen, his servitor before becoming his biographer, he surpassed the young by his skill in the management of arms and the old by the strictness of his morals. He disdained to speak ill of whoever it might be, even when ill had been spoken of himself. About himself he would say naught, but he had an insatiable desire to give cause for talking thereof. Glory was the only passion that moved that young soul, yet was it disquieted within him, and he suffered great anxiety from thinking that his knightly combats seemed contrary to the precepts of the Lord. The Lord bids us give our coat and our cloak to him who would take them from us, whereas the knight's part is to strip all that remains from him whom he hath already taken his coat and his cloak. These contradictory principles benumbed sometimes the courage of this man so full of propriety. But when the declaration of Pope Urban had assured remission of all their sins to all Christians who should go and fight the Gentiles, then Tancred awoke in some sort from his dream, and this new opportunity fired him with a zeal which cannot be expressed. He therefore made preparations for his departure, but accustomed from his infancy to give to others before thinking of himself, he entered upon no great outlay but contented himself with collecting in sufficient quantity knightly arms, horses, mules, and provisions necessary for his company. With these four chieftains, who have remained illustrious in history, that grave wherein small reputations are extinguished, were associated for the deliverance of the Holy Land, a throng of feudal lords, some powerful as well as valiant, others valiant but simple knights. Hugh, Count of Vermaudois, brother of Philip I, King of France. Robert of Normandy, called Shorthose, son of William the Conqueror. Robert, Count of Flanders. Stephen, Count of Blois. Raimbault, Count of Orange. Baldwin, Count of Hainaut. Raoul of Beaugency. Gerard of Roussillon and many others whose names contemporary chroniclers and learned moderns have gathered together. Not one of the reigning sovereigns of Europe, kings or emperors of France, England, Spain, or Germany, took part in the First Crusade. It was the feudal nation, great and small, castle owners and populace, who rose in mass for the deliverance of Jerusalem and the honor of Christendom. These three great armies of crusaders got on the march from August to October, 1096, wending their way, Godfrey de Bouillon by Germany, Hungary, and Bulgaria, Bohemond by the south of Italy and the Mediterranean, and Count Raymond of Toulouse by northern Italy, 
Friuli, and Dalmatia. They arrived one after the other in the empire of the east and at the gates of Constantinople. Godfrey de Bouillon was the first to appear there, and the emperor Alexis Komnenos learned with dismay that other armies of crusaders would soon follow, that which was already so large. It was not long before Bohemond and Raymond appeared. Alexis behaved toward these formidable allies with a mixture of pusillanimity and haughtiness, promises and lies, caresses and hostility, which irritated without intimidating them, and rendered it impossible for them to feel any confidence or conceive any esteem. At one time he was thanking them profusely for the support they were bringing him against the infidels. At another he was sending troops to harass them on their road, and when they reached Constantinople he demanded that they should swear fealty and obedience to him, as if they were his own subjects. One day he was refusing them provisions and attempting to subdue them by famine, and the next he was lavishing feast and present upon them. The crusaders on their side, when provisions fell short, spread themselves over the country and plundered it without scruple, and, when they encountered hostile troops of Greeks, charged them without warning. When the emperor demanded of them fealty and homage, the Count of Toulouse answered that he had not come to the east in search of a master. Godfrey de Bouillon, after resisting every haughty pretension, being as just as he was dignified, acknowledged that the crusaders ought to restore to the emperor the towns which had belonged to the empire, and an arrangement to that effect was concluded between them. Bohemond had a proposal submitted to Godfrey to join him in attacking the Greek empire and taking possession at once of Byzantium, but Godfrey rejected the proposal with the reminder that he had come only to fight the infidels. The emperor, fully informed of the greediness as well as ambition of Bohemond, introduced him one day into a room full of treasures. Here, said Bohemond, is wherewith to conquer kingdoms. Alexis had the treasures removed to Bohemond's, who at first refused and ended by accepting them. It is even said that he asked the emperor for the title of Grand Domestic or General of the Empire of the East. Alexis, who had held that dignity, and who knew that it was the way to the throne, gave the Norman chieftain a present refusal, with a promise of it on account of future services to be rendered by him to the empire and the emperor. The chiefs of the crusade were not alone in treating with disdain this haughty, wily, and feeble sovereign. During a ceremony at which some French princes were doing homage to the emperor, a Count Robert of Paris went and sat down free and easily beside him. When Baldwin, Count of Hainaut, took the intruder by the arm, saying, When you are in a country you must respect its masters and its customs. Verily, answered Robert, I hold it shocking that this jackanapes should be seated while so many noble captains are standing yonder. When the ceremony was over, the emperor, who had no doubt heard the words, wished to have an explanation, so he detained Robert, and asked him who and whence he was. I am a Frenchman, quoth Robert, and of noble birth. In my country there is, hard by a church, 
a spot repaired to by such as burn to prove their valour. I have been there often without any one's daring to present himself before me. The emperor did not care to take up this sort of challenge, and contented himself with replying to the warrior, If you there waited for foes without finding any, you are now about to have what will satisfy you. I have, however, a piece of advice to give you. Don't put yourself at the head or the tail of the army. Keep in the middle. I have learned how to fight with Turks, and that is the best place you can choose. The Crusaders and the Greeks were mutually contemptuous, the former with a ruffianly pride, the latter with an ironical and timid refinement. This posture on either side of inactivity, ill-will, and irritation could not last long. On the approach of the spring of 1097, the crusader chiefs and their troops, first Godfrey de Bouillon, then Bohemond and Tancred, and afterwards Count Raymond of Toulouse, passed the Bosporus, being conveyed across either in their own vessels or those of the Emperor Alexis, who encouraged them against the infidels, and at the same time had the infidels supplied with information most damaging to the crusaders. Having effected a junction in Bithynia, the Christian chiefs resolved to go and lay siege to Nicaea, the first place of importance in possession of the Turks. Whilst marching towards the place, they saw coming to meet them, with every appearance of the most woeful destitution, Peter the Hermit, followed by a small band of pilgrims escaped from the disasters of their expedition, who had passed the winter, as he had, in Bithynia, waiting for more fortunate crusaders. Peter, affectionately welcomed by the chiefs of the army, recounted to them in detail, says William of Tyre, how the people who had preceded them under his guidance had shown themselves destitute of intelligence, improvident and unmanageable at the same time, and so it was far more by their own fault than by the deed of any other that they had succumbed to the weight of their calamities. Peter, having thus relieved his heart and recovered his hopes, joined the powerful army of crusaders who had come at last, and on the 15th of May, 1097, the siege of Nicaea began. The town was in the hands of a Turkish sultan, Kilij Arslan, whose father, Solomon, twenty years before, had invaded Bithynia and fixed his abode at Nicaea. He, being informed of the approach of the crusaders, had issued forth to go and assemble all his forces, but he had left behind his wife, his children, and his treasures, and he had sent messengers to the inhabitants, saying, Be of good courage, and fear not the barbarous people who make show of besieging our city. Tomorrow, before the seventh hour of the day, ye shall be delivered from your enemies. And he did arrive on the sixteenth of May, says the Armenian historian Matthias of Edessa, at the head of six hundred thousand horsemen. The historians of the crusaders are infinitely more moderate as to the number of their foes. They assign to kill a Jarslan only fifty or sixty thousand men, and their testimony is far more trustworthy, being that of the victors. In any case, the Christians and the Turks fought valiantly for two days under the walls of Nicaea and Godfrey de Bouillon did justice to his fame for valor and skill, by laying low a Turk, remarkable amongst all, says William of Tyre, for his size and strength, 
whose arrows caused much havoc in the ranks of our men. Kilijarslan, being beaten, withdrew to collect fresh troops, and after six weeks' siege the crusaders believed themselves on the point of entering Nicaea as masters, when on the 26th of June they saw floating on the ramparts the standard of the emperor Alexis. Their surprise was the greater, in that they had just written to the emperor to say that the city was on the point of surrendering. And, they added, we earnestly invite you to lose no time in sending some of your princes with sufficient retinue, that they may receive and keep in honor of your name the city which will deliver itself up to us. As for us, after having put it in the hands of your highness, we will not show any delay in pursuing with God's help the execution of our projects. Alexis had anticipated this loyal message. Being in constant secret communication with the former subjects of the Greek Empire, and often even with their new masters, the Turks, his agents in Nicaea had induced the inhabitants to surrender to him, and not to the Latins, who would treat them as vanquished. The irritation amongst the crusaders was extreme. They had promised themselves, if not the plunder of Nicaea, at any rate great advantages from their victory, and it was said in the camp that the convention concluded with the emperor contained an article purporting that, if, with God's help, there were taken any of the towns which had belonged aforetime to the Greek empire, all along the line of march up to the Syria, the town should be restored to the emperor, together with all the adjacent territory, and that the booty, the spoils, and all objects whatsoever found therein, should be given up without discussion to the crusader, in recompense for their trouble and indemnification for the expenses. The wrath waxed still fiercer when it was known that the crusaders would not be permitted to enter more than ten at a time the town they had just taken, and that the emperor Alexis had set at liberty the wife of Kilijarslan, together with her two sons, and all the Turks led prisoners of war to Constantinople. The chiefs of the crusaders were themselves indignant and distrustful, but they resolved with one accord, says William of Tyre, to hide their resentment, and they applied all their efforts to calming their people, while encouraging them to push on without delay to the end of the glorious enterprise. End of chapter 16, part 2